Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, I'm so glad that this talk can still happen despite uh, all the things that are happening. Um, so uh, I was going to use a, a physical whiteboard at various points in, in the talk. I, I found the in-app whiteboards uh, wasn't quite big enough. So um, just can everyone read that? Because I have some way of indicating uh, with the thing. OK, great. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a platitude, which is uh, that I used to be a child and that now I'm not. And so from that, it seems to follow that I must at some point have stopped uh, being a child. And if you accept the, the principles of classical logic, you can make that a lot more dramatic. You can show that there, in fact, was a last nanosecond during which I was a child. So a nanosecond such that at the beginning of it, I was a child. And at the end of it, uh, I wasn't. Um, so uh, what people normally do to diagnose that, uh, that, that kind of surprising conclusion is to say something along the following lines. Uh, well, it's a vague matter when that uh, nanosecond occurred. So there's a, a period in my history during which it was borderline whether I was a child and that nanosecond could have happened during any, any point during that period of time um, at which I was a borderline child. Um, sorry, I just realized I don't have a pen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, a couple of things I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, emphasize about that. Uh, so firstly, the, the conclusion that there's a last nanosecond during which I was a child isn't specific to say epistemicism or, or, or you know, some, uh, some particular account of what borderlineness is, it's just a consequence of the principles of classical logic. So it must be accepted by anyone who accepts classical logic, so that includes supervaluationists and, and uh, other, other views. Um, secondly, the diagnosis, I haven't, I've sort of presented in a fairly uh, theory neutral way using this notion of a borderline case. Uh, that's a notion that I think anyone who's in the business of theorizing about vagueness uh, will use and ought to have. So in this talk, I will adopt a bit of notation. I will assume that there's this primitive uh, operator. Um, lost it. A primitive operator. Uh, it's uh, borderline level P, um, written like that. Uh, I'm just checking it's visible. Um, so, so this means it's, it's borderline weather P. There's some subtleties as to the exact way we should formalize this. Uh, some people treat it as an operator, some treat it as a, a metalinguistic predicate. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll represent it like this. And if you have that notion, you can introduce, uh, by definition, the notion of being uh, something, uh, a proposition that's true, but not borderline. So, you know, there was a period at which I was a borderline child, but also, there was a point before that when I was a child and not even borderline a child. Uh, so by definition, I'll introduce this other operator. Uh, uh, it's determinate that P, meaning P and it's not borderline level P. So the crucial thing to emphasize here is that determinacy isn't a theory specific notion. It's a notion that anyone who has the concept of borderlineness uh, ought to have. Um, 
So once we have this notion, we can now ask further questions. So although I wasn't, I was at one point a, uh, uh, a borderline child, there was a time before that in which I wasn't, I was a child, but not even borderline child. And uh, I, I, I was a determinate child. So by the exact same reasoning it follows, there was a last nanosecond uh, during which I was a determinate child. And it feels as though the very same reasons that push us to diagnose the, the last nanosecond of childhood being borderline should force us to diagnose that that last nanosecond of being a determinate child is also uh, a case. Uh, it's also vague where that boundary lies. So we should say that it's, it, there are points where it's borderline whether I was a determinate child. And then you can talk about the, the, the points at which I wasn't, it were, you know, I, I was borderline a determinate child at some point, but before that, presumably, I was determinately a determinate child. And the reasoning is iterate. So we should have borderline cases of being a determinate, determinate child and so on. Um, so this is the phenomenon of higher order vagueness. And that's the, uh, the thing I want to talk about um, today. Uh, and uh, before I sort of kind of to jump into that topic, I want to say a few things uh, about well, in, in the literature, at any rate, some people have uh, tried to downplay or, or deny the existence of higher order vagueness altogether. So I want to say a few things about why I think the phenomenon is real. So I think of people like Diana Raffman and Crispin Wright and John Burgess and, and several other people have um, either, either sort of, you know, set aside the worries to do with higher order vagueness or denied it exists. The first thing I want to note is uh, let's, let's just focus on someone who denies the existence of second order vagueness, borderlineness concerning what's determinate. Um, so the first thing to note is, uh, uh, so people who deny second order vagueness tend not to give um, concrete hypotheses about uh, the lengths of their determinate childhood in nanoseconds. Um, and that's presumably because they, they simply, that's all these, not the sort of uh, thing that you could know. Um, there's something a little bit puzzling about this because if the length of my determinate childhood was a precise length of time, then you might have thought it's a sort of length of thing that one could in principle uh, discover. So the, uh, a year is a precise length of time. Um, I don't know how long a year is in nanoseconds, but I could in principle work it out with, a, you know, if I had enough time or I had a calculator. Um, so there's something interesting about the length of my determinate childhood. It's a precise length of time, but I, I also seem to be un, unable to figure out how long it is in nanoseconds. Um, so there's an, an initial challenge to someone who denies the existence of second-order vagueness, which is to uh, explain why we can't figure out how long that, uh, that period is, if it's not to do with vagueness. Uh, and a more, more kind of positive argument for there being vagueness there, really just that it looks and smells like vagueness, so um, it, it occurs in sort of the similar sorts of uh, scenarios. Uh, so, so uh, you know, the most natural conjecture for what's uh, stopping us knowing in this case is, is vagueness. Um, that said, there are, there are people who, who do go this route. I think, say, for example, Rosanna Keith in, in her book has, um, uh, you know, articulated something like this thought. The, the idea that there is just some other sort of phenomenon uh, happening that's preventing us from knowing um, here. Um, but I just want to point out this, this other phenomenon, whatever it is, is uh, it's 
it's extremely mysterious. It's, it's, it's philosophically puzzling in exactly the same uh, ways that vagueness is. Um, so if you're going to make that move, I think you need to, we should introduce a new name for that thing. Let's call it Schmagness, the thing that's blocking us knowing where, where the determinant childhood ended. Um, Schmagness is an interesting phenomenon. It's as, as puzzling as vagueness is. Uh, so it deserves, uh, you know, it deserves philosophical uh, study. So uh, in one sense, I, don't, I think making that move doesn't really get you, past, get you away from uh, puzzles. It just duplicates. You now have the puzzles of vagueness and the puzzles of shmagness. Um, just uh, similarly, just as I can talk about, I can introduce a, an operator, it's determined that in terms of its vague weather, I can do a similar thing for its shmag weather and, and produce another operator like this and raise questions about when the last... Uh, the last nanosecond during which I was a, a child, but not shmeg whether I was a child. Um, so you get, you get similar sorts of uh, puzzles as, as I'll be looking at here. Um, and the final thing I want to say about it is if you do go for that sort of view that there are just, there's vagueness, there's shmegness, presumably there's uh, something that stands to shmegness as shmegness stands to vagueness. Uh, I don't know how to iterate shmuz, but uh, maybe shmuzmuzmegness or something. Um, we've got all of these different levels of all of these different sorts of phenomena, uh, there's a simple way of translating the questions I'm going to be concerned with into ideology you like, namely, think of the umbrella concept of being either vague or schmeg or schmeg or schmeg and so on. Having one of those properties, uh, whenever I say vagueness, just think of it in terms of that umbrella uh, term. And the questions I'll ask will, will make sense to you and will be as puzzling and, need, and, and in need of solution. Um, good. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what I have to say. That's why I think that the, the phenomenon of vagueness is great, higher order vagueness is real, and needs, needs to be solved. Um, so what I'm going to be talking about in this talk is uh, a purported argument, or an argument that purports to show that um, a certain sort of higher order vagueness isn't possible. And uh, I think that's puzzling and, and even paradoxical because uh, of the sorts of uh, reasons I just gave that the higher-order vagueness um, ought to exist. Uh, and it concerns not the boundary between being a determinate child and not being a determinate child, or being a determinate, determinate child and not being a determinate, determinate child. Rather, it concerns the boundary between being uh, determinately a child at all orders and not being so. Um, so the, the argument proposed to show that there is a precise, there's no vagueness concerning when I stopped being a, uh, a determinate child at all. So I'm going to introduce another bit of terminology here. I'm going to say that a proposition is determinate star. That just means the long conjunction P and it's determinate that P and it's determinate that it's determinate that p, and so on and so forth, ad infinitum. So it's an infinite conjunction. Uh, so it can be defined from, the, if you've got borderliners, you have determinacy, and therefore can be defined in terms of infinite conjunctions on that notion. Okay, and so the argument that I'm going to discuss, it sort of has this basis in a number of 
arguments that exist in the literature in one form or another, but I sort of, I've, I've simplified it into, a, I think, a, a very, uh, a slightly more minimal set of assumptions, which I think make clear what we have to deny. So the assumptions are as follows. Um, and this is, these, these are on the handout as well. Uh, but the first one is classical logic. And by classical logic, I, I mean to include um, the classical logic of infinitary conjunction as well as normal rules of classical logic. Um, the reason we need this is because determinacy at all orders was defined in terms of an infinite conjunction. Um, but by the classical, of, the classical logic of infinite conjunction, I just mean do the obvious thing. So like for the conjunction and introduction rule, um, just generalize it in the obvious way so that it can take, if you've got an infinite collection of propositions, A1 and A2 and A3 and so forth, if you have all of those, then you can infer the conjunction of all of them. And then the obvious analog of conjunction elimination, that is if you have the infinite conjunction, A1 and A2 and A3, et cetera, you can infer uh, any particular conjunct, AK. Um, so really the obvious generalization there. Uh, the other assumption I'm going to use, one of the other assumptions I'm going to use is the uh, a closure principle, the determinacy, which says if a conditional is determinate and the antecedent of the conditional is determinate, then the consequent is two. Um, I'm also going to talk about the uh, Ruerian principle for determinacy. This is probably the the least obvious of the principles. Um, it says that every truth is determinately not determinately falsehood. Um, so uh, anything that's true is determinately not a determinate falsehood. And then finally, I'm going to use this principle of necessitation, which basically says, if you can prove anything from these assumptions, then you can put any number of boxes in front of it and any number of uh, determinacies in front of it. Um, well, it, it has the effect of being able to do that. So if you can prove, if you can prove something, you can then also prove that it's determinate. And this corresponds to the idea that the theorems of classical logic, for instance, are not only true, but they should be determinately true. They should be determinately, determinately true and so on. And that same applies to the, the other assumptions we've stated here. <clears throat> so the, the problem um, uh, is that from these assumptions, you can prove uh, the following pair of facts. Can everyone see this far down? I just want to check if you can see that. Okay. Um, you can prove the following pair of facts. Um, that if something is determinate at all orders, uh, then it's determinately so. And if something's not determinate at all orders, then it's determinately so. Um, and uh, so 
this means, in particular, given uh, an instance of excluded middle, that either something is determined as all it is or it isn't, you can infer that uh, anything, any claim of the form is determined as all orders that A will itself be uh, uh, determinate whether it's true. That is to say, there's no, there's no borderlineness concerning whether something's determinate as all orders. It's always precise. Now, uh, I think this, there's a, this makes uh, trouble uh, if you combine this with the assumption that I used to be determinately a child at all orders. There was a point, you know, maybe when I was a newborn or something, at which I was at all orders, it was determined that I was a child. And uh, uh, it follows, therefore, that there was a last little second at which it was determined at all orders that I was a child. But by this theorem, it moreover follows that it's not even, it can't be borderline when that last nanosecond occurs. Um, and at least all the sorts of puzzles we expect uh, to see um, when we deny borderlineness. We should, we should, you know, if it's the precise length of time, then there's a puzzle as to why we can't figure out uh, how long that period was um, in, in nanoseconds. So I'm going to say a few things. Um, uh, I'm just going to walk through some responses to similar paradoxes in the literature. Um, I'm going to start by looking at this first principle down here. I'm just going to rub this off and rewrite it at the top. Um, so this first part of the theorem, uh, which on the handout is delta plus, I call it that. But anyway, it says if something is determinate to all orders, then it's determinately so. So some, some philosophers have thought that this, this result on its own is bad enough. So uh, note that you need, I, I had two versions of this. Uh, the theorem had two bits. One was this and the other was that when you're not determined to all of this, you're determinedly not determined to all of this. Um, so this itself doesn't rule out, I claim, vagueness concerning what's uh, determinants to orders, but there are some philosophers who think that just this on its own is is uh, already bad news. And I, so for example, Rosanna Keith thinks this. Hartley Field also thinks this. Um, so I want to say a few things about, uh, I, but I, I'm not on that view. I, I think actually that this principle is true. This half of the theorem uh, is true and doesn't commit us to anything bad on its own. Uh, so. I also want to give um, a, a little argument as to why this part of the theorem should be true, um, whatever we say. Um, and that's a, a really compelling argument can be made in this case. Uh, and you can find this argument in Tim Williamson's book on vagueness. It, it comes from, the argument comes from this principle that a determinate, sorry, a conjunction of determinate truths should itself be determinate. So we can formalize that as follows if we have that A1 is determinate, and A2 is determinate, and A3 is determinate, and so on, then we should have that the big conjunction A1 and A2 and so on should be determinate. <clears throat> um, So let's, let me just run you quickly through why this, this principle, I think it's plausible and I'll explain why I think it's plausible in a minute. 
but I'll explain now why, why this commits you to this principle. And the thought here is, well, suppose I have that A is determinant of all orders. So that's given our definition, that's equivalent to saying A and it's determinant that A, and it's determinately determinant that A, and so on. Well, by infinitary conjunction elimination, I can eliminate one of the conjuncts. So that obviously implies that, that is the term just dropping the first conjunct that implies that it's determinant that A and it's determinately determinant that A and so on. But now we have something of this form. So that means we can bring the outermost delta, the outermost determinacy operator to the front of the big conjunction, giving us uh, determinately applied to A and determinately A and determinately A and so on. Which, of, of course, this is our definition of being determinate at all orders. So this says it's determinate that it's determinate at the start. So if you've got it, it's determinate at orders at A, then it's determinate that it's determinate at all orders at A. Um, so Hartree Field's uh, approach to the paradoxes of Harold of Agnes and also to the, 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 the live paradox as well, he's, he's solving both of these at once is to deny this principle that a conjunction of determinate truths is itself uh, determinate. Um, so I just wanna say a few things about why I like this principle. And then I'll say a few things about why it doesn't actually matter to the, to the result that I just gave you. So um, the reason I like this principle is if, if you know, borderlineness in a conjunction has to come from somewhere and it more, or just more generally borderlineness has to come from somewhere. Um, and if it's not coming from the conjuncts, so if all the conjuncts are determined, determinant, then it must be coming from conjunction itself. Uh, but conjunction itself is a precise operation. It shouldn't be able to introduce borderlines like that. Um, and there's this more general principle. I talk about it in, in, in my book on vagueness, and you know, there's a slightly more precise formulation there. But the general thought is if you've got a precise thing, a precise operation and a precise argument, and you put them together, you should get a precise result. So if you have a precise predicate and a precise name and you put them together, you should get a precise sentence. Or if I put a, I've got a precise operator and a precise proposition and I put them together, I should get a precise proposition back. So this the thought is, okay, if I've got a, a conjunction with precise and I've got a, a bunch of conjuncts that are not introducing vagueness, then, then the result should be um, precise. The conjunction should be precise. So that's, that's the first one. I think this, so that's my reason for thinking that this is true, is that you can derive it from this, and this has very good, this can be itself derived from an affordable principle about how vagueness is inherited from smaller things to bigger things. Um, but actually it doesn't, the, the, the issue here is it actually doesn't matter to the argument I gave you. This premise that a conjunction of determinate truths isn't one of the premises in my argument. Um, in fact, uh, you can actually prove from the assumptions, um, in particular, the, the assumption B, that a conjunction of determinate truths is uh, determinate. That actually follows from just uh, the assumptions I've already given you. Um, uh, one way to sort of, uh, I was initially quite surprised by this when I realized it's actually an, an instance of uh, something prior showed a while back, um, namely that the, the Barkin formula, follows from the principle 
the brewer's brewer's principle in uh, quantified terminal logic, because the Barclay formula actually is uh, structurally exactly like uh, this principle. So when you see it like that, it's maybe less less surprising. Um, so at any rate, if, if you're field, that means you have to give up uh, one of the other. It's not sufficient just to give up this. You have to give up one of the other assumptions that I listed. Now, obviously, how you field gives up classical logic, but it turns out the derivation of this principle from B uh, can, works in his logic as well. So he, he, that's not going to help. Um, he has to give up B as well. So uh, in a sense that, that this result is still putting constraints on um, uh, non-classical logicians as well. Um, I'll just say, since I'm accepting this principle, uh, I'll just say a bit about why people don't like it and why I'm not swayed by that thought. Um, I think what, what people are thinking when they, when they don't like, when they look at this principle is, look, if, if there's a borderline, if we have a borderline case, so it's consistent with the existence of borderlines concerning what's determinate at all orders. But this, if this principle were true, it would mean that any case of any case where it was borderline, whether uh, p was determinate at all orders, would be a case where it in fact wasn't determinate at all orders. So if I'm this borderline, whether I'm uh, determinately star a child, then I'm not determinately a star, star a child. That's what this principle would imply by contraposing it. Um, and, and then there's more generally, there's this thought that, well, that seems weird, weird and paradoxical. How can you have a case, how can someone be a borderline F without being F? But again, that's just something that you have to live with if you're a classical logician. Um, and the reasoning is kind of fairly straightforward. Suppose I've got a, a borderline case, uh, say it's borderline whether Harry is bald. Well, then it's also borderline whether he's not bald, right? Um, and uh, so given excluded middle, either he's bald or he isn't. So we've got either that he's, Harry is bald and it's borderline, it's Harry's not bald and it's borderline whether he's bald, or he's not not bald and it's borderline whether he's not bald. So in, in either case, we have a, a sentence of the form, uh, we've got a disjunction, both disjuncts of the form, Harry is uh, borderline F but not F, for some F. Um, F being bald or not bald, respectively. Uh, so, so basically, that, that sort of phenomenon is going to be very widespread once you've accepted classical logic. Um, I guess another another principle that sometimes gets invoked um, in this as a way to uh, get around this is the uh, um, closure principle K. So, uh, for example, uh, Bobstein has, Susanna Bobstein has denied this in, in connection with the paradoxes of hierodivatus. But I think actually a very, a very similar argument can be made in favor of this principle. So we've already argued that a conjunction of uh, determinate truths um, should be Determinate, and that holds as you know as forcefully in the finite tree case as in the infinite tree case. So if you've got p and q are determinate, then the conjunction p and q should be also determinate. 
The other direction I think is extremely plausible. Um, if uh, you can't have a determinate conjunction with a borderline conjunct. So if the conjunction is, is determinate, uh, the conjuncts must, can't, can't, neither of the conjuncts can be false or borderline, but they must both be determinate. Um, so this, this principle seems, I think, quite good. And if you also have the idea that logical equivalence can be substituted, salve veritate, you can actually prove the K principle. Um, the idea here is just, well, if I have that these two, these two things are determinate, P, R, S, Q, and P, then by this direction of that principle, we get that the conjunction is determinate. Um, but if the conjunction, the conjunction here, P, R, S, Q, and P, is logically equivalent to the conjunction of P and Q. So substituting logical equivalence gets us that. And then finally, um, we can uh, reply the reverse direction of this principle to get that both P and Q are individually indeterminate, in particular, um, Q is determinate. So these are all, the fingers of a chain of conditionals, each one implies the next one, so that if you have the one at the top, the, the, the conditional with the with this is the antecedent and this is the consequent um, follows. Uh, so we have effectively proved K from some from some other principles that I think are more more intuitively uh, uh, or at least uh, amenable to a more straightforward justification. So the the final sort of response I want to look at. Um, is uh, it doesn't involve denying the explicit premises in, in the theorem, or, or it may do, depending on how you flesh it out, but, but it involves just denying uh, the other ingredient for, for turning it into a paradox, which was that I used to at some point be a child and moreover determinately so at all orders. So you could have a picture where very little is determinate at all orders. Maybe, maybe nothing at all is determinate at all orders. Um, and I think there are, well, I, th I think the plausibility of this response can sort of, it depends on a, another contentious issue in the philosophy of vagueness. And I want to look at how the response looks on both of those, um, uh, uh, those options. So the, the issue I'm thinking about is whether we should think of borderlineness as being represented as a propositional operator or as a metalinguistic predicate. Um, so, or maybe in other words, whether you think that propositional vagueness is the, the basic notion in terms of which, you know, sentential vagueness should be explained, or whether you think sentential vagueness is more basic and you should either explain propositional vagueness in terms of it or deny that propositional vagueness exists. I think those are the, the, the usual options. So Kean Dor goes for the, the latter sort of option. He thinks that uh, vagueness is a linguistic, sentential vagueness is the basic thing. And his basic thought is, look, the more you iterate the terminacy predicates, the, the more distant world you have to consider concerning how language is used. And once you've iterated it you know, enough, you might be looking at worlds that are extremely distant, worlds in which uh, English words are being used in all sorts of deviant ways. Perhaps even logical words like and or not are being used in deviant ways. Um, 
So, for example, if there's a world where all means and, then we wouldn't expect even the, the sentences of classical logic to express truths. And so we shouldn't even expect the sentences of classical logic to be uh, determinate at all others, which means in particular that we shouldn't accept the uh, necessitation principle uh, that I put on the handout. That basically allows you to put as many determinacies in front of a uh, theorem of classical logic as you want. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that view in a minute, but, or, but I also want to look at, the, look at it from the other perspective. This is, the, this is sort of the perspective I like, which I defend in, in, in uh, my book on vagueness, namely that propositional vagueness is the more, more basic thing. Um, so one thing to note is if you're a friend of propositional vagueness, you're likely, uh, so you're likely to think that uh, metaphysical necessity isn't the, the broadest sort of um, necessity there is. And uh, one reason, one, one way to see this is um, there will be metaphysically necessary truths, presumably, that aren't uh, uh, determinate. And since determinacy has all the formal uh, properties that a, a kind of necessity operator has, that means that being metaphysically necessary doesn't imply being uh, necessary in every, every possible sense of necessary. Um, examples where you've got something that's metaphysically necessary but not determinate um, might include, uh, so for example, if given plausible supervenience assumptions concerning how uh, the, the, the vague supervenes on the precise, perhaps you think everything supervenes on the propositions of physics, and you think the propositions of physics are precise, then uh, there will be there'll be necessary facts you know, telling us how, for example, the, um, the cutoff point for childhood depends on the underlying precise parameters like age and nanoseconds. Uh, there'll be necessary truths of that form, but those truths won't be determinately true or determinately false because uh, uh, they're, they're, those, those are the sorts of things which are, are paradigmatically vague. Um, so, you know, the metaphysical necessity will not have this special status anymore, um, but there will be some propositions that are special. Uh, say, it's raining if it's raining, that the proposition that it's raining if it's raining, that's presumably both metaphysically necessary and determinately true. And moreover, it's, it's necessary in any given sense. Any operator that behaves like a necess necessity operator ought to apply to the proposition that uh, snow is white if snow is white. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we have another distinction between propositions, namely propositions which are necessary for any given sense of necessary and propositions which aren't like that. So call a proposition which is necessary in every sense a broadly necessary proposition. Um, so we just suggest if you're a friend of vagueness, you're likely not to think that propositional vagueness, sorry, if you're a friend of propositional vagueness, you're likely to think that uh, broad necessity isn't metaphysical necessity. Um, but even though we don't have that to guide us anymore, I think we have a lot of good candidates um, for things that uh, would be broad necessities. Um, things that, like, it's things expressed by logical and conceptual truths, like it's raining if it's raining. Um, uh, you know, vixens are female foxes, scarlet is a shade of red, uh, newborns are children, and so on. Um, and I think, I think those sorts of 
you know, paradigmatic cases of broad, broadly necessary propositions could give us uh, the sorts of premises we needed to get a sororities going. Um, so take, for example, the proposition that scarlet is a shade of red, and uh, imagine shifting the shade scarlet um, up the spectrum until we get to a sh a some shade of, a shade of orange, which isn't a shade of red. Um, so we have a sorority sequence now, starting with scarlet as a shade of red and ending with uh, some other shade uh, of orange, so that's stating that it's a shade of red. Now, if the first premise is broadly necessary, it's broadly necessary that uh, uh, scarlet is a shade of red, then it's going to be determinate at all orders because being determinate at all orders is itself an operator that behaves uh, formally like a necessity operator. Um, so uh, we, we have the premise we need to get the sororities running. So there's, there's going to be a, a shade of red, scarlet, that's determinately uh, a shade of red at all orders. And um, uh, it's going to follow that there's going to be some particular uh, shade, you know, a, a particular slight change in shade at which you, you'll stop being. A, uh, a shade of red determinately at all orders. And moreover, if the theorem was correct, you, you would, uh, it would be, complete, it'd be a complete precise matter when that, where that shade was. And so we'd be, we'd be in exactly the same sort of um, puzzle we started off with. Um, I, think, I think those sorts of considerations can also be applied to uh, a linguistic theory. So even if you don't think that, uh, if you, if, even if you don't believe in propositional vagueness, um, there still are some sentences which you might expect to be determinate to all orders. Um, you know, door notwithstanding, I think people who do take this line tend to, tend to think that logical truths and conceptual truths are determinate to all orders. So, so the sentence, it's raining if it's raining, and vixens are female foxes are the sorts of sentences um, that ought to be uh, considered uh, determinate to all orders. And, and, and again, you can use that to, to get the puzzle going. Um, okay, so we've really, we talked about all of the, apart from classical logic, which I'm not really going to question much, we talked about all of the uh, premises um, of the arguments. So apart from the principle B, uh, which is the one I want to focus on. So it says, uh, every truth is, uh, determinately not a determinate falsehood. And by truth here, I just mean, when I say it's true that P, I just mean P. I'm not, I'm not using true to mean something more substantive like determinate truth here, I'm just, or super truth. I just mean using truth in a purely disputational sense. Um, so I don't know many, very many positive arguments in favor of this principle. I think that one of the best things going for it is it just seems to be true. It just, it just sounds good when you say it. Um, but I also want to put some sort of resist, you know, offer some sort of resistance to that sort of um, uh, line of thinking. Uh, here's another great principle, or another principle that to my ear sounds just as good. Uh, every truth is not a falsehood. It's not, sorry, every truth is determinately not a falsehood. So this says every truth is determinately not a determinate falsehood. But I think also, I mean, if that sounds good, so does the claim that every truth is determinately not a falsehood. Um, which, of course, you know, given classical logic, we can just, uh, or other assumptions, it's the same as every truth is determinately a truth. And um, 
this principle on its own will imply that there's no vagueness whatsoever because we'll also get every, uh, for any p not p implies it's determinately every falsehood is determinately a falsehood. And uh, given that p or not p, we can infer that uh, for any proposition whatsoever, it's determinate or its negation is determinate. Um, so anyone who's in the business of theorizing about vagueness, anyone who believes that vagueness exists, shouldn't accept this principle. Um, and I, I think once you've sort of gotten used to thinking in a way where that principle doesn't hold, I, I think the sort of the immediate reason for thinking that this is, this is good um, evaporates. Uh, the other sort of argument I know in its favor is a lot more theoretical. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's found in, I guess, it's not really put, as an, put forward as an argument uh, as such, um, but it's mainly the, the kind of most natural way of modeling vagueness. Uh, or there is a particularly natural and uh, you know, striking way of modeling vagueness in which the B principle comes out to be true. And this, um, this was uh, articulated in uh, this semantics was articulated in Williamson's book and, and, uh, and, a, and a company paper. Uh, and the model theory basically works like this. You have a bunch of um, indices or points. And uh, you should think of the points as, you know, don't think of them quite as possible worlds. Think of them as things that settle all possible questions. Um, including precise questions like, you know, how old people are in nanoseconds, but also settling questions um, concerning uh, where the cutoff point for being a child is. So settling both vague questions and precise questions. So if you're a, a supervaluationist, you might think of the indices as ordered pairs of worlds and precipitations. Uh, Williamson doesn't think of them like that. Um, as, as I will be thinking about them, I'll think of them as broadly possible worlds. So not, not metaphysically possible worlds, but broadly possible worlds in the sense that we introduced earlier. Um, now, in addition to the points, Williamson has a, a notion of distance between points, um, which we should think of as kind of measuring how close they are. Now, different ways of saying what the distance facts amount to have been proposed. Some people think that worlds are close when the usage facts are, of the language in question are, are very near to one, one another and they're distant when people are using the language very differently. Um, if, you're a if you're a friend of propositional vagueness, you won't be thinking in that way. Uh, there's a more deflationary way of thinking about the notion of distance, namely, um, Two, two worlds are close when they assign near cutoff points to the, to say, childhood, and their distance when the cutoff points are, are, they assign are, are very different. So if, if these two worlds, if two worlds, uh, you know, one says the cutoff point is at this number of nanoseconds, and the one, then another one says that it's this kind of at the next nanosecond, they'll be close. But if they, if they uh, think that the cutoff for being a child is like a year apart, then we'll count them as being. Um, uh, distance. Um, and so Williamson's thought is to be determinate at an index, um, say here, uh, you have to be 
for a proposition to be discerned, it has to be true at all sufficiently uh, nearby uh, indices. Um, so he, the, the basic intuition here is if the cutoff point, if I'm, if I'm this age and the cutoff point for being a child is, you know, uh, uh, you know, far, far away from me, if I'm safely a child, it's, it's a long, I've got a long stretch of time before I stop being a child. Um, then I'll count as being a determinate child. That basically means I can move, I can move the cutoff points uh, within some sort of margin and I, it doesn't matter if I move it, I'll still count as a child. Um, whereas if you're, that means you're a determinate child. If you're too close to the boundary, then you will not count as a determinate child because you can move the boundary by a sufficient amount, a small amount in such a way that one way of moving it makes me not a child and one way of moving it uh, uh, makes me a child. Um, your, your, the proposition is true in, in all the worlds that are sufficiently near to you. Um, given this notion of distance. And given that each, each index comes with its own, there's the same notion of being sufficiently near as it uh, applies across the different indices. Uh, you'll see that if X uh, is near to Y, so I'm just gonna, Uh, if x is near to y, um, then but if, if, if y is near to x by x's lights, then uh, x will be near to y by y's lights. We draw the same if we draw the same size circle around y, an x's circle, x will be y circle. Now what that means is we can sort of, if you know a bit of modal logic, Mean that the accessibility relation that this determines is a symmetric one. It means if x sees y, then y sees x back. And if you know any modal logic, that means that uh, the principle, that, so that's the frame condition for the principle, the Brewer's principle, which basically tells you that this principle has to be valid um, in the frame. So that's the kind of the, the initial argument. Um, then there's this paper by Anna Matani in, uh, in Analysis, where she points out that, well, we shouldn't just be looking at the cutter points for things like child and, and bald and so on. We should be looking, we should care about other vague things, in particular being sufficiently near. You know, the sufficiently near is like how much tolerance you can, you know, have before you, to count as being determinate. That's vague itself. Um, the determinacy operator itself is a source of vagueness. So we should expect the radius to vary from world to world. We shouldn't expect the radius to be the same at each different world. Um, so for example, uh, X might see Y, but Y's accessibility radius might be slightly smaller like that. So X can see Y, Y is in X's radius, but X is not in Y's. Actually, I'm gonna draw these diagrams a bit bigger because, um, so this is the general. So, so this, this, I mean, the point here being that uh, X can see Y, but Y can't see X back. And this means that the B principle doesn't hold in general. 
if, for example, P was only was true at X, but not at Y, P was only true at this point in X, uh, then uh, P would be true, but over here, uh, P would be determinately false. And so it wouldn't be determinately true that P wasn't determinately false at X. Um, So, okay, so that, that seems like good news. It seems like if we, if we go for the, this sort of Matani's revision of Williamson's semantics, we can, we can avoid the B principle and therefore avoid the result. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I, I think that that response is a little bit, that there's a worry here and there's sort of a, a revenge uh, paradox uh, lurking. And that's basically because you can replace, um, any of, you can replace the principle B with uh, uh, any one of these following weakenings and still prove the result. So uh, I'll call this B squared is any truth uh, is determinately not a determinate, determinate falsehood. So I've just replaced the, uh, it looks like that, and you can introduce the uh, following notation, right? Determinately superscript n to mean a sequence of n determinacy operators in a row. Uh, there's a principle that says, it's called b to the n, um, and it says, it just puts, uh, it says any truth is determinately not a determinate to the n falsehood. Um, uh, and then there's this other principle I call b star, it's a bit less intuitive, but I'll just write it out anyway. Um, it's also, I think, on the handout. Uh, it says if, if it's determinate that if P then it's determinate that P, and also it's not determinate that not P, then P. Now, that doesn't mean very much on its own, but I can give you an intuition for what these, these things say in terms of their frame conditions. So if the B axiom says that if X sees Y, then you can get back from Y back to X in one pop. So that's what symmetry means. If X sees Y, Y sees X. Uh, B squared says, B to the two says, if X sees Y, then you can get back to X in two hops. Right? If X sees Y, you can, you can uh, Y will see a world which sees X. Um, B cubed says, if X sees Y, you can get back in three hops and so on. Um, B star says, uh, if X sees Y, then you can get back in some number of hops, some finite number of hops, but it doesn't put any upper bound on how many that is. Um, so they're all like generalizations of the symmetry idea, whereas symmetry says you can always get back in one hop. Uh, these basically say you can get back in, you know, some number of hops, either, either some bounded number or, or, some unbounded, or any number of hops. Um, and unfortunately, all of these principles, if you substitute them for B in the theorem, they would also suffice to prove the theorem. Um, and the worry is that Matani semantics uh, might validate some of these, these uh, weakened principles. Uh, therefore, meaning that we can't actually use it to kind of get around the problem. Um, so let me, uh, let me just explain why that is. Um, and it, relies on some, some assumptions about uh, the, the notion of distance we're using. 
So a, a standard notion of distance is to think of the points as being on a plane or a Euclidean space of some sort, so like the, the three-dimensional space we live in, or perhaps a two-dimensional space that is this stored itself. It's a, a two-dimensional Euclidean space. Um, so it's, it's got lots of special properties. Not all metric spaces, not all, not all notions of distance are well, as well behaved as a two-dimensional surface of, of the borders. Um, but it's a very natural, a natural uh, kind of thing to, to, to work with. And now imagine that we're also imposing the constraint that the things that this point sees, they can't lie on the edge. So um, we're, we're, we're basically using the strict notion of um, uh, uh, being, being within the margin. You have to be strictly within that margin, not, not strictly or equal to. Um, the other thing, I, I slight change I made to Matani's semantics is, um, well, we need, an, we need some constraint to, rep, to uh, account for the fact that nearby worlds should agree about the cutoff points. Close, worlds that are close should have similar cutoff, uh, assign similar cutoff points. In particular, if two worlds are similar, very close, then the, the cutoff point for being sufficiently near should be close. Um, that is to say, uh, if, if f, if the radius um, around, if rx is the radius, the length of the radius around x, and ry is the length of the radius around y, so this is, uh, this is rx, and if that's y over here, that would be ry is the, the length of that radius around y. Uh, then the difference between them should be less than or equal to the distance between the points. So when, when you've got two very close, when points are close together, their radii are very similar. When they're further apart, their radii can be different. They can be quite different. Um, so here's, here's, here's why we get B star from, from this sort of semantics. What's that put all the constraints in? Well, X can see it can't see a point exactly on the edge, but it can see a point arbitrarily close to the edge. Now, because it's not exactly, this, that means that the radius, Y's radius can never be zero. It, it, because it's different from X's radius. It ha, the difference between this radius and X's radius has to be less than the distance between them. Um, and uh, uh, if, if it was zero, then it would be actually equal to the distance between them. Uh, so its radius, its radius, it's got some non-zero radius. But then we can, if that's why, uh, then we can look at a point on uh, Y's radius that Y sees that is slightly closer to X. And because it's closer to X, its radius must be closer to X's radius. So the circle around that point will be slightly bigger. Then we can look at a point that that point sees. Uh, again, that's closer to X. Well, because it's closer to x, the radius again has to be closer to x's radius, so then we get a bigger circle around it, and um, so on, until we get back to x. So uh, basically the thought is if, if, x, if x sees some point y, no matter how close to the edge it is, you can always get back in a finite number of steps, because um, where, however close to the, y, to the edge you get, the radius is going to be non-zero, and you're always going to be able to pick uh, a point that's closer to you, and you can keep picking closer, closer points until you get back to X. 
and, and the radiuses can't shrink indefinitely. Um, so uh, a very natural class of frames with, with Matani's uh, properties uh, validate the B star axiom. And the B star axiom is enough to reinstate um, our paradox. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's basically, that's basically why, where, where I am in terms of thinking about this. Um, the last thing I did on the handout was, well, there are some, there are some technical theorems that I'm probably going to skip over because I'm, I'm running out of time. It follows, it, it turns out that actually the, if you don't put all of those constraints, if you just look at the, there's a definition of what a B frame is on the handout. So if you're interested, you can look at that afterwards. If you just take, uh, uh, the, the semantics uh, as very unconstrained, allowing the metric space to have any, any sort of properties, uh, the logic of those frames is in fact exactly KT. That means you can invalidate the B star axiom in some frames uh, like that, uh, that, that Matani describes. Um, but there won't be, the, the, the completeness theorem will not give you very natural counterexamples of B star. They will be sort of cooked up to make the cooked up in a kind of mechanical way where they don't give you any information about what's going on. Um, so what, I, what, I done, what I've done at the end of the handout is describe in a bit more detail, a slightly more realistic uh, model of um, what's happening uh, in, 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 the, in these cases where, the, where it sort of hopefully explains um, uh, how the, uh, so it gives you a sort of feel for how um, um, very, yeah. Uh, I think I think maybe I've I've talked for long enough, so maybe I'll I won't bother going through that. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll end there. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much.